You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, I'm the pastor at City Church. We're going through the Bible in a year, a different book of the Bible every week, overview sermons. We're in First and Second Peter this week. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, also, uh, my uh, family has had season tickets for Miami Hurricane football since 1956. My boys are fourth generation season ticket holders, and uh, I have, uh, I'm good buddies with uh, some of the Florida State coaches who are part of our church family. And uh, we had a little group text uh, agreement because I was so confident in my canes uh, that if uh, Florida State did win the game, which allegedly happened, I, I don't know, I haven't heard, uh, that, um, that I would uh, do this. So uh, there we go. Okay, so there we go. So uh, Coach Barfield, congratulations. And then uh, there. And there you go. Uh, my son, my oldest son, has to wear an FSU jersey when he does the announcements at our student ministry on Wednesdays. Y'all are just brutal. <laughs> I, uh, I tell my boys, if you dish it, you got to learn to take it. And it's, you know, it's for our family. It's just not very common. This hasn't happened since the Obama administration, so I don't know what to say. So, uh, so let's, uh, let's pray, and then, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful to be together as a church family this morning for the families we had up here on stage earlier. Lord, we just ask you to bless their lives. We're grateful for life. We're grateful for family. We know that you are our heavenly father and the greatest family is our spiritual family. What an amazing thing to know that we are all one in Christ, all who know Jesus. So Lord, I ask we'll be a reflection of that. I ask that you speak through me today. You be with all the churches in Tallahassee. You keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city and that we'll be all about Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. So 1 Peter is written to Christians who are facing a lot of hostility, a lot of harassment, a lot of persecution, like marginalization on their best day and outright physical persecution on the worst day. And Peter, an eyewitness to the life of Christ, to his death and resurrection, writes this letter that we call 1 Peter. Jen Wilkins, summarizing the book and describing it, Jen says this, our inheritance through Christ is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In 1 Peter, a man of faith and flaws, he was certainly a man of flaws, but thankfully a man of faith, and eyewitnesses to the life of Christ challenges us to look beyond our current circumstances to a future inheritance. Peter making his case says this in chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. This is not secondhand knowledge, thirdhand knowledge. I didn't take a class or a seminar. I'm an eyewitness to the things I'm about to write to you. I had my own flaws, Peter, be honest about that, but I'm someone who is convinced of who Jesus is, not just because I heard about him, but because I saw him with my own eyes. I saw him die, I saw him suffer, I saw him rise again, I saw him ascend to heaven, and one day I'm gonna share in that same glory because of what Jesus has done for me. He tells the people they are chosen and exiled. Chosen by God to be his people and now exiled into the world. The exact same language he's using here for Gentiles that the rest of the Bible uses for the people of Israel. They are a chosen people by God. Not a replacement of Israel, a fulfillment of the promises of Christ that would go to the ends of the earth. That God would have a people for himself, and they're exiled, not like the Hebrew people actually in a foreign land physically, but they're spiritually exiled, living in a land that's not their home. And here's what he says to the chosen people of God, spiritually exiled in a hostile place. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great Mercy. He's shown us mercy. He's not punished us as our sins deserve, but punished Christ instead. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth 
into a living hope, not a past understanding, an active present hope that has legs on it, that has feet. Because why? Jesus is risen from the grave. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is where we find our living hope. And into an inheritance. And what is this inheritance? This real place called heaven where real people go? It is imperishable. It is undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven right now for every believer. To summarize that simple, our inheritance through Christ is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. God wants us to understand this over and over again. And because of all this, now that's the posture for the rest of our lives. Because this world is temporary. The promises of God are not. So he says in verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, to now live this life as exiles for Christ. Be sober-minded. Now, being sober-minded is the opposite of the mindset of this world right now. If you go online right now, would you ever conclude that people are sober-minded? He says, no, we think differently as Christians. We should act differently as Christians. Why? Because our hope is not here. So be sober-minded and set your hope completely. Not halfsies, not a quarter of the time, not at Easter and Christmas season, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A mark of a mature disciple is that we're eternally minded. We're faithful here, but we're looking forward to the world to come. As obedient children, that's what we are. God is our father. We've been adopted into his family. Don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Don't revert back to when you didn't know God, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So what's the call for us to live our lives in holiness? One, it's that God is holy, but also it shows us back a few verses where our hope is completely set. So our pursuit of holiness, two things, because God is holy, but also it shows us and shows the world and is really kind of evidence of the fact of how we live our lives, trying to flee from sin and flee to Christ, that our hope is not set on the things of this world. Our allegiance is not to them, therefore we're not going to give in to the desires of our former ignorance. And he goes right back to it. Why? Verse 23. Because you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable. Now we say regularly here that when we hear the words born again in the Bible, we've got to realize that born again is not southern revivalistic language. When I thank God for that southern revivalistic language, because it's true, but born again language is Jesus language. He said that everyone must be born again or they will not inherit the kingdom of God. A new life, a new birth, death to who you used to be and not made alive in Christ. When you give your life to Christ, at that moment of your conversion, you were born again. The Holy Spirit regenerated you and brought you to life. To see the living and enduring word of God. And again, these reminders to the people that are struggling in this region at this time in the first century. They would look to Peter for advice and wisdom as a model. He goes, hey, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, that's what endures forever. So let's fix our eyes there, in our hearts there, in our minds there, and this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. I didn't give you fluff. I didn't give you life principles for the sake of life principles. I didn't give you TED Talks. I gave you the enduring word of God, he's saying. The gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, but sustains us and leads us to live our lives for God's glory. Gosh, this text pumps me up. Therefore, 
because all these things are true, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Why, that's who we used to be. And all those things fade away. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. Our desires should change. Our affections should change. So that by it, you may grow into your salvation. If you've tasted the Lord is good, because you've actually tasted the Lord is good through the scriptures and believe these things to be true, the things of this world aren't going to taste as good anymore. Spiritually speaking in the metaphor. Like a newborn baby. I mean, think about when your baby, for those of you that just had child dedications or parent commissioning this morning, when that baby's born, is there a greater lifeline than the bottle? I mean, it can be a saving grace sometimes. It's like the baby's screaming in the back of the car, give her a bottle. She's, she's already ate five minutes ago. I don't care. <laughs> give her a bottle. It's life-giving. It soothes. It chills out. It brings peace. It nourishes. And in all the storm that's going on in the backseat of the car, for a moment, mom or dad can go, and not want to drive into a pole. Just being honest about how it works. In the same way, not just in the storm, but for our very lives, we want to be people who crave the pure spiritual milk of the word because by God's word is the best way that we'll probably grow by our salvation. He says, dear friends, there's a contrast here, the temporary versus the eternal that's happening. Dear friends, I urge you, and here's that language, as strangers and exiles, which would not have been common language for Gentiles to hear, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. There is a real enemy. There is a war taking place for your soul. I believe the devil is not a metaphor in the Bible. I believe the devil is real. Jesus believed the devil was real. The devil is a real being. We can't be ashamed of those kind of beliefs. Like, we believe that Jesus rose from the grave. We can believe anything else he believed in anything else that he said. The devil is a real being that's out to devour God's people. So now, as this new posture as strangers and exiles, we're to conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles. So when they slander you, as in it's going to happen as evildoers, today it's called that you're intolerant, that you're a bigot, like you believe the most basic thing in all of the Bible that marriage is between a man and a woman, which is the most like foundational, clear thing you see in the Bible. Like it's the least controversial thing in all the Bible. It's like God loves you and here are human beings. Men and women, male and female. It's like it is the most non-controversial thing in the Bible, yet a cultural revolution, very calculated, we've caved into. And if you don't, you're going to be slandered as an evildoer. He says, conduct yourselves honorably anyways. Live your life holy anyways. Love people anyways. Because they're going to observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So where does this take place, this living our lives faithfully as the chosen people of God as exiles? It's going to happen at home. Again, parents, you are the primary disciple of your children. You're the primary evangelist to your children. It's going to happen at school for all of our students. Elementary, middle, high school, college, grad school. It's going to happen at work. I think right now maybe it's middle school and high school students who are probably the greatest living example of having to encounter the stranger and exile world all the time. All the time. 
I mean, college students can at least, like, they, they only go to class a couple times a day. They're online a lot. They can kind of huddle and, and, and then kind of, you know, into their little kind of Christian community, which can be good and bad. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for high school students, I mean, you get thrown into the wolves of this world every single day. Like, you know exactly what it looks like to live your life as a stranger and an exile. And Peter has a word for you, and it's to remain faithful. It's to look ahead, that their approval is not what you're ultimately looking for because you have God's approval in Jesus Christ. But notice here what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, as strangers, hide and protect yourselves from the world. Notice that's not his strategy. His solution is not run the opposite direction. He says these words in the text, among the Gentiles. And in that context, these are unbelievers. He's calling them as sojourners and exiles in a hostile world to live faithfully among the unbelievers. There's two temptations I think Christians face that are far off in a reality. And the two really more options, even temptations, are one, to remove ourselves from the world. We're just, everything in your life is Christian, completely removed, kind of put an ironclad figurative wall around your life and around your family where the only real interaction for unbelievers is when you have to, which is like when you have to go to work or something along those lines. And now, a lot of you work from home, so you don't have to do that anymore either. <laughs> it's, it's easy just to remove ourselves from the world. Jesus in John 17 actually prayed, Father, I ask that not that you remove them from the world. He actually prayed that specifically. He said, but instead that you protect them from the evil one. And the second thing is to resemble the world to blend in, to cave, to give ground, to compromise, to sell out. Peter would say to go back to the desires of your former ignorance. But is there a third way? It's not easy. Again, we're exiles, we're strangers. It's not designed to be easy. But the third way, I think, is exactly what Peter called them, that they are exiles, they are strangers, they're sojourners. Some translations say aliens in a foreign land. And I think... The third way simply is that, the way of a sojourner, who definitely lives here and your address is here, but your loyalty is not here. Your zip code is here, but your convictions are not of this world. They're of a world to come. And I think there's some tips on how to live that out. You might say, well, you're a pastor, you work at a church. Yes, I do, and it'd be a big problem if we had unbelievers work at our church. Uh, so I'm around uh, believers all the time, but I work really hard in my life. I'm not saying I'm perfect at this, but I work really hard in my life to make sure that I'm around people who don't know Jesus regularly. But I, I mean, that's like one of the postures of my life. Like I, I'm, I'm a pretty flawed guy. I make a lot of mistakes, but one area where I try to be consistent over and over again is to be around unbelievers all the time because I think when I read the scriptures that that's who Jesus went after, and that's who Jesus was around. And he got criticized for it, but I think it matters. So here's some tips on how to, I think, live a sojourner life. One is to be provoked, not offended. As in, when I see sin in the world, that I'm not outraged when unbelievers act like unbelievers. Rather than be offended, I'm provoked to action. I'm provoked to be in their life, to open my mouth, to show love, whatever it needs to be. Uh, I'm a Christian, and I'm not great at acting like a Christian. Why should someone who's not a Christian be good at acting like a Christian? Theologically, they can't even do that. They don't have the Holy Spirit. It's a daily effort and daily battle for me to live for Christ. I'm sure you're no different. So why would I be offended when unbelievers act like they're supposed to act? 
Now you might say, well, when do you speak up? When do you actually get offended? Aren't there things we should be offended about? Well, certainly, certainly. And I think it's areas where the scriptures are clear. Let's say someone is, is struggling with something, like genuinely struggling with something in their life. Like, like it's an unbeliever that, that is wrestling with identity issues, wrestling with whatever it could be. I want my posture to that person to be compassion, to walk with that person, to show love to that person, to answer their questions, to be able to give a word from the scriptures to that person. The exception would be, now the love should never stop, but the exception is when they try to force a lifestyle or agenda on us. That's when it's on. That's when it goes from being simply provoked to actually being offended. When unbelievers act like unbelievers, we should not be offended by that. They're supposed to act like that. Now, when believers act like unbelievers, Peter's going, whoa, you're a sojourner. Remember, set your minds on Christ. This is a perishable world. Set your things on things of eternity. When unbelievers act like unbelievers, then we should go, oh, yeah, guess what they need? They need salvation. They need Christ. They don't need discipleship. They need evangelism. Then from there, we'll start building the life of faith. But when the agenda comes your way, when it's forced down your throat, when they mock the things of God, when unrighteousness is celebrated as righteousness, then as Christians we have a responsibility to speak up. But our daily posture is one that's provoked, not offended. The second one, I think one of the keys to the gospel going forward in Tallahassee is how Christians view their employment. The second one's called is being called, not employed. I don't just work a job to get to retirement. I'm not just working a job to provide for my family, even though it is a very biblical principle and calling upon the need to provide for your family. I'm not even working a job, you might say, that's ideal or perfect or my dream job. But I'm not employed randomly by the state. I'm not employed by this company. I'm not employed by this business, by this school. I'm called. And maybe you're not called to that particular office, that particular time, but you're called as a missionary to make much of the gospel wherever you are. Meaning they see you as different, and as it said here, they look at your life and they'll glorify God as a result because they see the third thing, that distinct lives point to a distinct God. Distinct lives point to a distinct God. So when Christians are pursuing holiness in the workplace especially, that our hope and our prayer is it will point people to a distinct God. It will also create some hostility because we're told the world hates Jesus. The world likes Jesus in the manger. Totally cool with that. Grown-up Jesus, they're like, whoa, Skippy. No, no, sir. So we don't expect you to try to live for Christ at work and everybody go, awesome, can you start a Bible study? I have heard of that happening. And it's amazing when it does. But we're not promised that. Expect hostility, but also prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. I'm going to go to lunch when you ask me, and I'm going to be in your fantasy football league, and we're going to hang out, and I'm going to look at your pictures from your trip, and I don't really care, and you know, all these kind of things. Why? Because I care about you. Because I care about you. I really believe that is one of the keys to the future of the gospel going forward in our community, is for those people in the workplace to see themselves as missionaries. One of our elders, Steve Elia, says that a game-changing moment in his life was when he realized he didn't have to earn a paycheck from a church in order to be in ministry. That he's in ministry based on the fact that he is a Christian that God has sent out into the world in the realm of business where God has placed him. 
called, not employed. For those of you that stay home, stay home with children, maybe you're retired, your calling at home is those children. You're not just there to get through the day, to get through the routine. It's those children. Those of you who are retired and are home, how are you using your retirement? I'm not saying you have to go to on a mission trip every two weeks, but like, what does a prayer ministry look like for you from your home? What is you trying to reach out and mentor and being the lives of people younger than you look like? How do your neighbors view you? Grandchildren, adult sons and daughters, whatever it might be. Like it's all, like when we get in our cars on a Monday morning and back out of your driveway, I know if you drive a truck, you go forward because always back in. I know, sorry. But if when you leave your driveway, when you leave your driveway, you go on a mission trip every single day. When you wake up in your home in the morning, and a little kid's tugging your leg at six in the morning. It doesn't have to always be glamorous, is what I'm saying. That God has us and has called us to be his ambassadors for Christ into the world. And he's telling this to a people in hostile situations. And he goes, I know it's not going to be easy, so what do we do? Chapter 3, verse 18, we look to Christ. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. That's where we look, not to ourselves, the righteous who he was for the unrighteous, which was us, that he might bring you to God. That language there is so important theologically. Once for sins to bring us to God, once for all. When Peter says that Jesus suffered once for all, he is surveying the whole of Jesus' suffering for mankind that ultimately is realized and culminated in the cross and in the resurrection. But first before that, actually in his suffering, death that we do not have to suffer since Jesus suffered once and for all in order to receive God's favor. We don't have to suffer in order to earn forgiveness. We don't have to suffer in order to enjoy and to know God's love. The ultimate suffering has happened once and for all. The penalty owed for our sinful rebellion was fully and finally paid by Jesus on the cross. So now when we suffer, it's not because God's mad at us. When you go through pain, it's not because God is punishing you. That's already been accomplished once for all by Jesus. When we read the scriptures, which we must turn, because suffering is real, and the Christian's job is not to pretend it doesn't exist or is sugar-coated or to give super spiritual answers, but to say the truth. We see in the scriptures that suffering happens for a few different reasons. One of those is to make us more like Christ. And you might be going, why is this what it takes? God, what is going on? Another one's biggest dependent upon him. It's to bring God glory. It's to be a witness to the world. Rarely do I see a Christian go through serious suffering, especially one that can be known by people via Facebook, all those kind of things, where people are not impacted for the glory of God as a result. And where that family doesn't become more like Jesus in the process. We don't love it, we don't ask for it, but we expect it because we're in a broken world that is not our home. But our theological minds are really important here because we realize when these things are taking place, it's not because God is mad at us. All of God's anger and all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous. Instead, God's using the things in our life, putting them together, aligning them up to ultimately make us like Christ. He says, dear friends, chapter four, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you? 
Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. And I know that's easier said than done. I know that sounds crazy. But here's what he tells us. So that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. So you're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Like if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Like better be ridiculed for Jesus than applauded for the things that are perishing. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. As in, don't suffer because you've been a fool. Don't bring it upon yourself. That's not suffering. That's just punishment for you being an idiot, right? That's basically what he's saying. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in having that name. It's been gifted to us by grace. So the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? If we don't have to fear judgment, no matter what's coming our way in this world, imagine those who don't know Jesus. Imagine what's coming their way. If we endure the trials here, imagine what they're going to endure later. That's why, as my friend David Platt says, the gospel's only good news if it gets there on time. We have to make sure it gets there to people the good news. He says to humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Like your reward is coming, but it's not promised here ever. Casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. So suffering people, here's a word for them. God cares about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. So be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, he's real. The devil's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And one of the things he wants to use to devour you is for you to leave your faith during your suffering. Or for you to have a deconversion because all of a sudden you go to college and now you're the smartest person in the world and you're questioning your faith. Satan uses those things. Hold fast. Resist him firm in the faith. And you're not alone. We know the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. But you're not the only one going through what you're going through. The God of all grace, that's who he is, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered for a little while. It's temporary compared to eternity. He goes to him, be dominion forever. Amen. In 2 Peter, Peter writes to the church, he's nearing death as a martyr. He knows that. He knows it's coming. He's basically writing a farewell letter to the church. And what he's going to focus on ultimately in this letter is false teaching. He might go, that's your last words? Is false teachers? Well, if he wants to leave behind a godly legacy, it's only going to be found in the truth. And he's afraid that the church that he's helped start and invest in is now going to drift away and go follow false teachings. His desire is for Christians to hold fast to the truth in Christ while patiently awaiting the second coming. And that's the theme here in the book. And we're told some really neat things in 2 Peter, that his divine power has given us everything required for life. That the Holy Spirit in you has given you everything you need to live for Jesus and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you might share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. And we're regenerated now. We can share in the things of God. How incredible is that? That's a whole sermon in itself, that verse. 
For this very reason, because of who we are now, because we share the divine nature with Christ, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. These are like the, this is like the antithesis of the world. Knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I want you to be confident in the scriptures. There's false teachers saying, it's not true. They made this up. If we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, instead we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As we say regularly here, when scripture speaks, God speaks. Like, if you want to hear God speak to you, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read that Bible out loud. These are the words of God in the scriptures. Jesus held to them. The disciples held to them. As Christians, followers of Christ, we should hold to them with confidence, knowing these are the very words of our creator in an act of grace and love that has given them to us. So here's what's going to happen, though. There are indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, meaning God, who bought them, God purchased us, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with, man, with made-up stories. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. And most of chapter 2 is devoted to this. In verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They've gone astray by abandoning, verse 15, the straight path. And where does he point them? To be clear about this, but also to the second coming. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact, that the Lord one day is like a thousand years. I know it seems like forever to you, it's not to God, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That God has made a promise that he has a people, and it is his will that none of those people will perish that every single person that God in his grace has appointed to salvation will come to faith. Like how amazing is our God? But the day of the Lord, the judgment, the second coming, will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness and wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Verse 13, but based on his promise, down to verse 13. Based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where God's going to make all things new. Think kind of a return to the Garden of Eden type of, type of environment where righteousness dwells, and it's going to dwell forever. For those of you who in this world, which is every Christian, he's saying, who are exiles, the chosen people of God, chosen and exiled, endure. Keep the faith. Don't listen to the noise of the false teachings. Crave the word. Why? Because all this stuff is temporary. But God has a plan from the beginning that he's been working out throughout history that we saw in the coming of Christ, that we saw in the resurrection, we saw before that in the prophets and all the stories of the people of Israel, their relationship with God. We're waiting on one more promise to come true. And he's going, I know it sounds like it's forever away, but God doesn't keep time like we keep time. He's not delaying in the way you think delaying, Peter says. Uh, This past uh, week, I had a chance to sit down with my friend Jim, 
Jim was just given, the doctor said, one to two months to live with pancreatic cancer. Sat down Friday together. I was literally sitting down with a man who knows he's going to die really soon. Jim's a Christian, praise the Lord for that. And we had a chance for an hour to talk about heaven. That's what we want to talk about. And talk about the second coming of Christ. And talk about eternity and the temporariness. He was, he was a Navy SEAL. I mean, Navy SEAL? Talk about a bad dude, man. That's he you want to roll with you, right? Uh, Navy SEAL. And now, because everything perishes, even the most decorated bad dudes <laughs> among us, everything's temporary. Everything fades. And I'm sitting across from him, and what does he want to talk about? Because he's actually facing it. He wants to talk about heaven. That's what's on his mind. And I got to sit there and watch this man who ministered to me more than I ministered to him. I, did, I read him a little bit of scripture, prayed, just kind of listened, because it's just incredible. I'm going to go back and see him this week. Uh, and I got to hear him sit there and talk about how excited. He's sad, don't get me wrong. Like he's, I mean, it's grieving, all those things in this world, but he's just talking about the, ch- the chance that he's going to get ready to actually see Jesus. Like, actually, truly see Jesus and to see his face just actually thinking about that. Because we think about it, it's like, yeah, heaven, you know, one day. Now. It's kind of how we think. He's like, I'm going to see Jesus in like three weeks. And it was so real to him. And he was just picturing what it was going to be like as I told him in our conversation to see every promise that God has ever made realized right in front of him. Right in front of him. For all eternity. Peter's going, hey, we look ahead. God has kept every promise to us. He has not abandoned us. He is with us from six weeks to live, from 50 years to live with no problems. God is there. And all these things in this world are going to fade away, but the one who does the will of the Lord, that's forever. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for Peter's message. Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to receive it as true. I ask to be with my friend Jim right now. Lord, allow him in these last days that you've appointed for him to continue to fix his hope on heaven. And I ask that be the exact same thing for every single one of us. That we'll be faithful here as exiles and strangers because you have been faithful to us. We look to Christ, not to ourselves. We look to the eternal Lord, in doing so, guide us and direct us by the Spirit to be faithful in the temporary. Lord, help the gospel to go. Lead us out. Find us faithful. Find us bold. Find us courageous. Find us loving. All in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.